All right, you got three seconds to actually care about the people around you. Now say hi. Just so you know, from up here watching you all, it's fun. Because there's some of you that you're like, oh, this is the best point of the service, you know? And you're like, hi, <laughs> And then there's some of you going, oh, I hate this. Get it over with. <laughs> anyway, that's how I have fun. It's good to have you um, here today. If you're, if you're new to Cornerstones, it is good to have you here. We, we're glad you're here. Um, if you have any questions about Cornerstone, you can ask back there. Uh, just so you know, you've come on an, another interesting uh, Sunday. Last Sunday, we had hundreds of people gone because of family camp. And this weekend, we have a bunch of our key leaders gone. Uh, in fact, there's, I think there's only three of the pastoral staff that stayed back from men's retreat that's going on right now. And so I forget that when you lose seven pastors and there's only three of you left around, um, there's a lot to do. You actually need those other seven. Like they're important, they're important what we <laughs> Don't tell them I said that. Um, but uh, just so you know, the men, there are some men up at the men's retreat and I know of a couple of them that I've been sharing Christ with. And so I would ask you for today as you think about it, pray for them. I really desire that some of those guys that I've interacted with and shared Christ with, I believe there's going to be guys up there that come to know Jesus Christ. We're going to have new brothers in Christ who hopefully then will see wives and kids embrace Jesus Christ because of it. And so pray for them, you know. So, and I'm going to pray here in just a second for them. But just, and I believe God's going to do a work in a lot of men's lives. That just They need God to do a work in their lives. So I'm, I'm excited about it. If you've never been to a retreat before, the good part is a place like they're at Hume, phones don't work. And have you ever noticed in today's world, we're attached like that little thing to a, a, like a leash, isn't it? I mean, the way it owns us. And to step out of everything for just a while and help men just to focus on God outside of all the stuff going on is a great thing. So I'm going to pray for them here in just a second. But also, probably some of you noticed one of the fixtures coming in here, Greg Burkhart wasn't out there. Um, we didn't say anything last week because he didn't want to because... Well, it's Greg. But um, he went in for surgery on uh, Thursday. Gosh, my days are blending together. Uh, came out, uh, surgery went well, he's resting, um, just had some stuff in regards to, he had to have a little bit of his lung taken out and different things, but just be praying for him. I mean, how many of us haven't been hugged by Greg? I mean, that guy comes, you don't have an option with Greg, you know what I mean? And he's big enough to force you to do it, you know, so... Um, but just be praying for, for him. And not only that, we have a lot of people battling cancer right now at our church. And don't forget, those are, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the battle as you walk through sickness is tough. And we need to be praying for them as we walk through it. And so could you just join me right now? I want to pray for those two things. And then we'll, we'll dive into what we're going to talk about. So, Father, oh, first of all, Thank you for today, the day that we celebrate that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Father, what a powerful testimony to the world that death cannot hold our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that you spoke boldly through that, that not only do you raise people from the dead physically, but you raise us from the dead spiritually. You change us, you make us different. And so I just want to praise you right now for that before I even go a step further just to say to you, you are a great God. And Father, I believe that that same power with which you raised your son, I believe you are going to do a work in men's lives while they're away at the retreat. God, would they come back differently? Would they look differently and interact with their families and friends in this local church? Would they just, because of your work in them, Father, would you give them a new, fresh perspective on what it is that you want to do through their lives? And Father, those men that are up there that don't know you, I pray that this weekend was the time of their salvation, that you would rescue them out of darkness. And so, Father, I can't wait to see and hear the stories of your grace and your power and your ability to make lives different. 
And God, even too, I believe that with a guy like Greg, we know he loves Jesus, walks with Jesus. And so I'm so thankful that even in surgery, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for our benefit, Father, he lived. And so that means the beauty of it is, is that uh, we will receive the benefit of an incredible guy like Greg. So thank you for him. Father, would you bring him back even more ready to serve you in ways that... Uh, blow our mind even more than what he already does. So thank you, Father. I ask you to also do a work in the lives of so many that are in the midst of sickness in our body. Father, our ultimate request is that you would heal them. Father, not to make their lives easier, not to get them out of the difficulty of a trial, but we believe that you control molecules inside of even a body. And if you wanted to heal, you can heal. But Father, sometimes I also know you glorify yourself by allowing us to go through difficult times. Either way, Father, we just rejoice that you will be honored in this above all. So help us in your precious name. Amen. All right. Well, here's what we're going to do. If you've got Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to be over here so I can kind of stay out of the way of my illustration um, that we're going to be doing today. But if you've got Bibles, uh, grab them. If not, you're not as good looking as Greg. Let's just be honest. You're good looking, I'm not going to lie, but you're not great. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, if you especially, oh, um, I don't see any. Okay, over here's a hand. But just, uh, they'll, they'll definitely bring you one. Uh, like I said, if you're new here, uh, one of our passions is the Bible. Uh, we believe in the Bible. We believe it's God's truth. We believe that he breathed it in such a way that uh, it is the only book that tells us the truth about life. And so that's why, uh, that's why we teach it. And so we're going to be in there today. We'll put some of the verses up on the screen if, uh, if you have a hard time in your Bible. But here's what we've been talking about. We've been trying to interact around this question, which is, what do we do with our freedom in Christ? In other words, when, when we came to know Christ, Jesus even said this, that, that when he came, he came to free us. He came to free us from sin. He came to free us from the law. He came to free us from all kinds of things. But then the question we have to ask ourselves is how do I live inside of that freedom that he's given me? Now, here's the thing that I want us to get in our head, and I'm going to throw this up on the screen from 1 Corinthians 11, 1. The goal of God giving us freedom is for this purpose, that we might be imitators of Jesus Christ. That at the end of the day, what God wants to do in our lives and in other people's lives is you can read all through the New Testament is he wants to shape and transform us so that we look like Jesus Christ. That's what he's seeking to do in our lives. He wants to make us imitators of Jesus. That's, at the end, what freedom is about. It's what salvation is about. It's all these different things are put in place so that we would look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, interact like with people like, uh, like Jesus would. And you know this, just think about it. Don't you read the New Testament and isn't there this thing in the back of your head that just craves to look like Jesus? Man, the way he treated people and interacted with people, the way that he did certain things. I mean, you read that and you go, yeah, that's what I want to look like. And that's what the whole New Testament is about, is about the reality of us being shaped into the image of Jesus, being made imitators of him. Now, but we also know, and this isn't in the Bible, just, you know, I'm not quoting the Bible, but there's a little statement out there that says, imitation is the greatest form of what? Flattery. That in other words, now, we asked this question last week, how do I make a name for myself, or two weeks ago, and how do I make a name for God? And the greatest way that we make a name for God is the more and the more we begin to look and act like Jesus Christ. That's how we make much of God. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And so therefore, when Paul gets to the very end of chapter 10, in 1031, he throws out this statement where he says, whether we eat or drink or sleep or whatever we do, we do what? All to the glory of God. And the way in which we glorify God the most is when we live like Jesus the most, okay? That's going to be his key to his whole argument, is that he wants us to look, walk, act like Jesus Christ and how to think through how Jesus Christ would do things. Now, on one end, I love the whole look like Jesus, but isn't there another side where you're like, oh, but uh, Jesus did some kind of hard things. One of my favorite passages is Matthew 19 when the rich young ruler comes to him and he says, how must I be saved? How might I be saved? 
Now, for most of us in this room, we'd be like, oh, let me quickly give you some factual information. Number one, uh, this is this, this is, and we'd lay out how it is that you can be saved. But Jesus asked him a bunch of questions and brought him to this point where he, he wanted the young man to understand that he had a love for money. And so he asked him this clear-cut question, and he asked it in this way, or he told him, actually not asked, sell everything you have and follow me. Now with it on one end, he didn't ask everybody to do that, by the way. He definitely asked the rich young ruler to do it because he knew that was what was going to keep him from following Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just him, like in John 3, when Nicodemus comes to him, and Nicodemus also asked the same question. How can I be a follower of yours? How can I be saved? And he says this statement to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is no salvation outside of being born again. And he begins to lay out for him what it would be like to be born again, what it means to follow Jesus. So on one end, we see that Jesus went to one guy, and we're going to talk about this in this end of it, on the weak end, and we'll talk about this in a second, Nicodemus. He also had the rich young ruler that had everything. And we liked that about Jesus Christ. But the question I would ask you is, not only would you interact with those people, but would you go where those people are? See, to go where they are includes going to, on this end, to go hang out at the temple. And Jesus hung out at the temple. In fact, it talks about him reading in the synagogue. He read the scriptures. But you know this other side we're not sure what to do with? That he was a friend of who? Sinners. <gasps> well, what do we mean by sinners? Tax collectors. And you'd be like, well, who cares? I don't like the IRS either. <laughs> Drunks. Prostitutes. And he didn't wait for them to come to him. In fact, he did what? He went into their world. See, on this, what I'm saying is, is when Paul's laying out this idea of using our freedom, would we say anything Jesus would say? Would we go anywhere Jesus would go? Would I actually engage out in what ministry in, that Jesus calls me to? And the beauty of what it is, is you don't have to muster the energy. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul lays out the way that we're able to understand what God wants us to do is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in 2, 6 through 16. And in fact, when the Spirit grabs our life and we begin to be transformed into the image of Jesus, Paul says this masterful statement at the very end in verse 16. At that point, we have the mind of Christ. We have the capacity and the ability to think like Jesus, not because we're Jesus, but because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. See, I don't think the church believes this like we ought to. I don't think we believe the Spirit is as powerful as He is, that He can take us into all kinds of situations, and in every one of those, I can act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, interact with people like Jesus. Again, not because I'm Jesus, but because I have the Spirit inside of me. And in John 16, he says, the whole goal of the Spirit is to honor Jesus Christ, and all the New Testament is how the Holy Spirit transforms us into His image. So are you with me to this point? Okay, good. That's what Paul's trying to do. How do we imitate Christ? Now, he's also going to do something in 11.1, which connects it to this idea that it's not just that we're supposed to imitate Christ, but if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. He said in there, and this is a bold statement, bold statement, that the way in which we're going to glorify God the most, he says, I'm going to imitate Christ, but you guys imitate Christ. Me. <laughs> Can you imagine that as a parent saying, kids, listen to me. You imitate me exactly as I imitate Christ. <laughs> You're with me. I'm like, oh my goodness. No, I just want you to catch me on my good days. Imitate me on my good days, but let's, uh, let's erase my bad days. But in it, this is what the boldness of which Paul said. Imitate me. And now look what he's going to do. He's going to explain it starting in verse 32. What does he mean by imitate me? He says in it, I want you, verse 32, to give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I, and here's the emphasis, try, listen to me. He doesn't say just as I 
carry it out all the time, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So now he's going to speak into this freedom end of it. He said, here's my goal. I try not only, and if you can imagine, if it, on this side, we have it the immoralist, okay? It's just the people off the deep end, and we'll put the Greeks over there. He says, in it now, the way that I try to imitate Christ is I try not to offend this particular group of people. Then on the legalist end of it, you'd have the Jews. I try not to offend these people. And also then he says, in between these lines, I try not to offend these people. Now, is anybody with me going, how in the world do you do that? I mean, even in this church right now, I promise you, I could say something that's absolutely biblically true, and some of you would be sitting out there going, that's right. And some of you would be going, I'm leaving Cornerstone. But in it, that's what he's calling them to do, is I, he says, am going to imitate Christ and try, it is, to please all these people. But he's going to say something to caveat it. I'm doing it because I've got something bigger in mind. I've got something bigger that I'm pursuing. Now, in it then, he's going to use all of chapters 8 and 9 to explain to us what does he mean by this in verses 32 through 33, okay? 32 through 33 is a summation of everything he said in 8 and 9. And so starting in chapter 8, he's going to tell us how it is within this particular group of people that I avoid offending people. That's what he's going to do. So we're going to talk about in this group of people that call themselves believers, how is it then that Paul seeks to not offend them? Now, what he's going to do in verse 1 is he's going to lay out for them a particular issue in regards to food sacrifice to idols. But he's going to say in there something so important. He said, I'm going to use the knowledge I've been given not to elevate myself. I'm going to use the knowledge I've been given to build others up. Okay, that's what he's going to do here. I'm not going to use the knowledge I have as a means to go off into sin. I'm going to use the knowledge also not as a means to put people into sin this way as a legalist. I want to use my knowledge as a means of helping people inside of biblical truth to be built up. That's what I'm going to try to do. That's my whole goal with them. Now with it, the difficulty what he ran into was that there were some people on this end that said, you know what, I don't want to. It's for freedom that Christ set me free, and I can do whatever I want with my freedom. In fact, the idea of taking away their freedom, they would hold to it kind of like this and say, I can't go. Don't take me away from my freedom. But what Paul's going to do with this group of people is to talk with them about how they can use their freedom to love other people that don't share their freedom. Now, on this end over here, though, there are certain people that because of sin don't want to fail, and so they hold on to this one going, oh, I can't let go of this. If I ever don't have rules in my life, I swear I'll go off the deep end. And they hold over here like this because of fear. Now, what Paul's going to help them to do then is what do we do then? Now, if you don't believe this is alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ today, then you are totally missing from church. I can come in here and say, what kind of music is best? There's some of you over here going, well, the really good music was written between 1500 and 1900. <laughs> it honors the Lord the most. They're hymns with deep, rich theology. On this end over here. <laughs> Legalist, no. On this end, right, no, the, I like music that more caters to, to my particular tastes. I like music that's got a good beat to it, and plus, it not only has good, 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 rich, deep biblical truth to it, but it's more transparent and honest. And so into it, I promise you, there are some of you in here that choose your church based upon what? My preference. How about this one? I don't do Halloween. <laughs> now, some of you are now, no, like, I swear there's somebody out there now going, why'd they just laugh? <laughs> right? Because there's, no, there's a seriousness to this. Many people over here, they build their case for why they don't do Halloween. Now, I grew up doing Halloween. I don't even, 
I mean, back in the like 70s and probably those of you that even remember the 1800s, right? There's this side of it. <laughs> There's only a couple of you. But on this side of it, though, we all kind of grew up, we grew up around it. But there's a few inside of this world that know the history of Halloween. They know what it's about. That it's a pagan holiday meant to worship really demons inside of what it is. And so in it, they look at it very sincerely, very sincerely. And they say, I don't want to do Halloween. Now on this side, come on. There's candy. <laughs> you legalistic good-for-nothings. We all grew up doing it. In fact, my grandma, who loved Jesus sincerely, used to dress like a witch. <laughs> right? Now, in it, what's interesting, though, and I'm trying to just throw out some simple ones, but now all of a sudden you'll have some people across this spectrum. And when I first came into pastoral ministry as a youth pastor... Anybody that homeschooled was crazy. You're going to ruin your children. They're going to become whatever. Well, now guess what it's swung to? Anybody that goes to public school, what? You're going to ruin your children. Inside of this, though, does the Bible ever tell me what I'm supposed to do with my kids in that way? The answer is clearly no. But yet, isn't it fascinating churches have fights over these things? They have fights over where it is that we're supposed to do certain things. And this is what Paul wants them to know. Are we sure we want to fight about this? Really? In light of the fact on that side are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and people that are on that end. And there are those over there that are engaged in all kinds of sin. And while you all fight in here, what happens? Nothing out there. And this is what Paul's seeking to address. You're caught up in stupid arguments, dumb things that are very sincere, by the way, but we got to get our minds focused on what's important. Now, with this, what he wants to do in this whole imitation of Jesus Christ thing is he's now going to bring it to the issue of food sacrificed to idols. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. Now, look down in verse 1. You'll even see that. He says, now concerning what? Food sacrificed to idols. Now, in our culture, and we talked about this last week, this isn't really that big of a deal. Like, in other words, we don't live in like a Hindu culture where they're pouring milk over certain things, you know. We don't live out where they're, they're in, in some ways, worshiping like physical stone gods. And so we kind of read this and go, okay, yeah, blah, 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 blah. But to that time, it was important. Now, if you remember right, on this end of it were people that in verse 7, if you look down in there, they were actually people that used to be engaged in the worship inside of temples. In other words, Paul says, to eat food sacrificed to idols, they remember what it was like and they can't go anywhere else. They look at that and they would say, I sin. And by the way, they are very sincere. On this end are people that actually ate food sacrificed to idols. It was no big deal. For them, they could eat the meat. It wasn't a big thing. Now, this group over here, though, said, in order to protect ourselves I need to stay over here. This one over here says, I've got freedom, and don't you dare take my freedom away. It's everything I talked about. They argued through this on all kinds of issues. They argued through it on sex. If you remember right, in chapter 5, chapter 6, there were groups of people that were even having awkward relationships with their stepmoms. They were going off to temples to engage with prostitution. And so then you know this, that group of people over there was going off the deep end. So what did the people on this end do? They created a rule, no sex. Now we do that still in the church today. In order for us to not go off that deep end, let's create rules down here that keep us from going off the deep end, missing the fact that on this side of it is even potentially more heinous sin. That to get people to the point where they live by rules and regulations is dangerous. It doesn't look dangerous, but it's dangerous. Now what Paul's going to do then, and I should have put that on that side, I should have put two what he's going to do now with this situation in Corinth is now he's going to talk about then what do we do with these yes people, I can do it, and these no people, I can't do it. Now, first of all, if you remember right in this, this group of people over here, they used the Bible. They were the spiritual ones. 
And by the way, listen to me. Just because somebody puts a verse at the end of it doesn't mean it's right. There's this little thing called proof texting, which means I go find the scriptures I really, really like that support my idea, and then I land it on other people, and proof texters are dangerous. They pull those little verses out and say, and especially in this case, they quote the Shema, there's no God but one. Psalm 15, yeah, there's idols out there, but they've got hands but can't serve, feet but can't move, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. They're just stone. And Paul says, nice biblical principle, but there's more to it. It's bigger than that. Sure, you look down in verse 8. Look down there real quickly. He tells them, and he doesn't disagree with them. Nice verses. But then he says, you're right. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat. We're no better off if we do. Turn over to 10. Look at verse 25. He's going to tell them something else. You're right. In some ways, you're exactly right. Verse 25, look, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question or ground of conscience. Look, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, well, then eat what's ever set before you without raising any ground uh, or question of, on the ground of conscience. In other words, go for it. We're not disagreeing with you. But there's always more to that story, isn't there? Nice biblical principle. But now he goes in verse 1 and he says, but what about love? What about love? Your facts are all right, but how you're presenting it to them, you're missing the fact that you're not loving these particular people. He doesn't disagree with them on that, but look down at that, like chapter 10, verse 23. He just says, look, all things are lawful, no doubt about it. You could do all those different things if you want to, but not all those things are helpful. All those things are lawful, I agree with you, but not all things build up. Now look at what his point is here. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, on here, these people that were over here were saying, if I lose my freedom, I'm going to hate it. And by the way, on certain issues, I'm over here. One of the, I hear certain keywords from over on that end of it where they say things like, well, I'm just trying to live to a higher standard. And I'm like, higher standard? What's a higher standard than Jesus. There's something higher than him? Isn't it hard enough just to live and walk like Jesus and then you're going to add more to it? Wow. Ain't you something? But I hear then that sometimes from a legalist, and I forget, though, they're not always a legalist. They're just a weak brother. So maybe like an issue like drinking, you know, I sit maybe here on an issue like that. But you know what? As far as I'm concerned, the Bible never once does say that we can't enjoy alcohol. But, look on the other side of it, don't get what? Drunk. But I forget the fact, there are people over here, verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7, that because of their past experiences, man, they're, they're, they're scared. There's some people that have gone down into alcoholism, into abusive drugs, and they're sitting over here, and they're scared to death because they know that if they, right now, continue to go to that side, they may not stop. See, Paul says there's a greater principle, there's this grand principle of love, that in other words, I've got to look at this picture bigger than just mine, and in fact, he's going to say in this, you are actually being asked then to potentially give up your freedom as a means of loving the weaker brother. Let me caveat this. There are some of you in here that are permanently weak. It's about time to grow. That in other words, the strong now aren't supposed to just go stay over there forever. The idea behind being the weak brother is that the, you need to be able to grow if you're going to be able to do what God has called you to do. Now again, I'm not asking you now to go do drugs if you're a former drug addict. But what I am saying is, is the weak person over there is dangerous if they stay in it for a long time. You get to places like even, <coughs> excuse me, is that they, yeah, uh, like in, could you throw slide 16 up there? Sorry, I need to, I think it's slide 16. In it, this person over here in their freedom, they can actually get to the point where Paul says, by going and enjoying food sacrificed to idols, be careful, you could go into idolatry, so flee idolatry. 
that my stubbornness over here, I can begin to fight against it so greatly, his point is, that you could actually go into the sin that you've said you don't want to go into, that you have freedom in. Now, on the other side of it, I have been weak in other areas. Sometimes I'm strong in areas, but sometimes I'm weak. One of the areas in which I tend to be the weakest is around all kinds of areas of of how do we deal with issues of marriage and divorce. Any of you that have ever had a divorce inside of your family, you get very weak. That in other words, when I see somebody come up to me and say, I'm going to get a divorce, on my end of it, I tend to then throw all the scriptures about what it means to not get divorced. I don't ever ask them why it is that that might take place. And by the way, divorce is generally not the answer, okay? Let me be crystal clear on that. I'm not saying divorce is a great thing. But in it, I can be this person over here that gets weak. And so in that particular issue, there are actually freedoms within Scripture that because of certain things that might happen, like in other words, you're married to an unbeliever, and being married to an unbeliever, they leave you. Paul says, you know what? You're not bound in that. I need to allow then Scripture to speak into my mind. Sometimes we're weak on certain things. And in Romans 14, by the way, this weak group can begin to get scary. They will become, what he says in Romans 14, judgmental. Have you ever been around a group of people like this where you have your view and you start to look over and you go, oh my gosh, do they even love Jesus? How could they go off into that? How could they even think that? Around certain issues we can get over here and Paul wants us to know that this is not a healthy place to be either if we're stuck in our particular position, knowing that biblical truth gives us more freedom. Now, here's what his answer is going to be, and let me kind of show you something. I brought some people with me. What can become dangerous for these particular strong people, and you'll see this from this text and from Romans 14, is they attach themselves to their view. In other words, this strong person gets their particular verses that they load up in their gun, and they tell themselves, this is as far as I can go and no more. This is it. I'll just look over at that particular group of people, and they'll throw things at them like legalists, and oh my gosh, what's their problem? But the danger, like we talked about last week, was is this person could end up over here. That's why Paul has to tell him to flee idolatry. Now, the big question that Paul's going to answer in this text, then, is what happens, though, if we've got another person, and I'm always nervous about touching ladies. (laughs) That's sitting over here and is weak. Because now, all of a sudden, you look at it, this one says, thus far and no more. This one says, thus far and no more. And all of a sudden, within a church, what do you have? All of a sudden, there's a fight. Now, with this, then, Paul's going to ask the question, what do you do? Now, on one end, this group over here says, well, I know, I'll just throw a bunch of Bible verses at them. I'll show them how stupid they are, and I'll ask them to detach from a wrong view, and we're going to talk about the conscience here in a second, I'll ask them to detach from their wrong view of the conscience. They've built their lives sometimes about rules that they follow that aren't biblical. And they say to them, what I want you to do is I want you to come over to me. But the problem is, he's going to say, is that particular brother might just keep going right past you. And he might end up over here in sin. Because he was attached to those rules and regulations. And all of a sudden, he ends up over here. A parenting, even though I've only got an eight, seven, and three-year-old. So just take this with a grain of salt. As a former youth pastor, I watched families raise their kids to be legalists. The moment they left home, what happened to them? Off the deep end. Why? Because you attached them to rules, not to what's most important. In fact, I would say we have so many kids leaving the church and going off the deep end because they learned rules, they didn't learn scripture. So what do we do? Well, while this guy is over, lady, sorry. Paul's principle now is going to be, don't ask this one to violate their conscience. And we'll talk about why in just a second. This one needs to realize that they need to have freedom spoken into their life. Now, here's where it becomes key. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7 says, 
to them. I have used Apollos and I as an illustration to teach you the fact of what it means not to go beyond what is written. So in other words, he's going to say to them, those of you that are strong, you need to understand something about your freedom. Your freedom is not there for you. Your freedom is there for others. In other words, stronger conscience person, I want you to go over here to your weaker brother. Now, there's some of you sitting out there going, I ain't giving up my freedom. And I would say this. Paul's going to talk about this later on, especially down in verses 11 and 12. By you demanding your weaker brother break his conscience and come to you, he says, you are not only sinning against them, you're sinning against Christ. To demand that somebody comes to me that's not able to is sin. Let me just be really clear. But... Paul doesn't say leave them there. They're to then help this one learn that this very thing that they're attached to, these rules and regulations that are keeping them back from doing it, is to attach them to Scripture. Let Scripture speak into it. Now, why would he do it? He says this because there's a principle he gets into then in 1 Corinthians 9 in order to reach people on this side of the spectrum and in order to reach people on that side of the spectrum, we need to be able to become all things to all people so that we might save some. See, in other words now, and this may take a week, two years, three years, four years, we begin to help people understand, not forcing them to come and under, to imbibe in it like in, in any way, but the understanding that they can live inside of biblical truth in a certain area in an effort to be able to reach people on this side of the aisle. And by the way, most people out there that are battling with sin, with immorality, they're not going to come to us over here. I believe one of the main reasons that we no longer reach people inside of the church of Jesus Christ is that in fear of failure, the church has come so far over here that we don't know what to do with it. We've created a bubble that we've put around ourselves. We want it safe and comfortable and secure. And so we create this little world over here where we're like, let's just stay here. Us four and no more. It's all good till Jesus comes back. Paul would have never said that. He would want them to understand, no, we need to understand our freedom because there's people that are over here that we need to be able to save. And generally, they're attached also to wrong things. They're attached to things... Now I get nervous here, too. I don't know if I'm more afraid of touching men or women. Now, even they... But they'll come over in a weird way, won't they? Sometimes these unbelievers will come a little bit over into our world. See, this is the principle of Christ. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He what? He went to them. That was Paul's principle in 1 Corinthians 9, is that we become all things to all people without going outside of Scripture. In other words, to, be, to meet a drug addict, we don't become druggies. But we come inside of this world and we give them a world to operate inside of that is clearly inside of biblical truth. But it's not just these people. See, over on this side, and this is where the strong person needs to understand. Man, is this a guy? Good, okay. There are many people over on this side. And by the way, I think the church is actually good at reaching these people. Mormons, Catholics. We kind of like them, don't we? Because they kind of fit in our world a little bit. We like them over here. They're good, nice, sincere people. They don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls that do. Right? We like them over here. They wear suits to church. You know I mean? It's like, this is nice. Now, what has to happen, though, is in order to reach this group of people, we have to be able to come to him. Do you see the principle here? Is that in order to reach people, we have to live inside of the amazing freedom that God has given us Not for ourselves, but Paul's going to say in 10.33, for others. Die to ourselves as a means of reaching others. Now, real quickly, what is the conscience? Because we're going to need this for more principle on how we do this next week. What's the conscience? All throughout it, could you throw up that slide that has the conscience uh, in in chapter 8? Okay. 
Now in it, if you look at it, all those yellow words, and we can't see it really well, but do you see all the yellow on there? It is the word conscience. Now that word in, in Latin, it literally is conscience, or this idea of with knowledge. Inside of Greek, it's, it's, it's sundesis, which literally means the same thing, with knowledge. That in other words, with the particular knowledge that someone has, this is how they live and operate and move inside of their lives. The Greek word, literally, the, the way that it's tied into it, is the idea of knowledge of oneself. It's the inner truth teller, our inner thoughts, our inner motives. It's, remember Jiminy Cricket? Okay, they were trying to show in there what is the, what is the conscience it's also that inner voice that even if we try to rationalize, justify, no matter what we try to do with ourselves, it's that little voice that's not convinced. Now, in it, it tells us when we're being contradictory to our values. So, in other words, it gives us boundaries in which we live inside of. In Romans 2.15, it kind of explains that. Throw that verse up there for me if you really could, could real quickly. It just says, They show the work of the law written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or what? Excuse. In other words, there's that thing inside of me that says, this is right, this is wrong, this is what I feel like. In other words, I'll feel good about myself when I do something right. I'll feel guilty on the other side if I do something that's wrong. Now with it then, it's salvation. Like in Hebrews 9 and 10, it says our conscience is washed clean. In other words, for the first time ever, I feel redeemed, I feel not, no longer guilty in front of this holy God, and so my conscience is just absolutely cleaned. God and I are good, is what the argument is out of Romans 9 and 10. But, and here's what's important for all of us in here. Everybody in here, our conscience is off kilter on all kinds of issues. Because in so many ways, biblical truth hasn't spoken into our lives. It's the understanding that everybody has a problem with their conscience on all kinds of different issues. What we do is, just like unbelievers, we attach ourselves to what we think is right. And on that end, we attach ourselves to what we think is right. But Paul has that statement in 1 Corinthians 2.16, Don't go past what is written. The beauty of what the Word of God does is it protects us from having a skewed or off-counter off, uh, uh, off, uh, 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 conscience. See, the reason that we need to read the Word of God correctly is because it tells us what is right and what is wrong. It tells us where we have freedom. Now, on one end of it, on this end over here, You'll have a passage like in 1 Timothy 4. Go to 1 Timothy 4 real quick up there for me, could you? It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now don't you want to just at that point think it's on that end? It must be people that are okay with sin. That must be a sin passage. Immorality. Actually, the thing that he tells them to worry about are those who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. All of you in here that are weak are susceptible to an unbeliever coming in and telling you lies. That's what Paul's saying. There's a susceptibility to you that when you hear that, there's something that could potentially pull you over here into this seared conscience person. And that's what I talked about last week as well. But it's not just in that, that by pulling you over here in Colossians 2.23, there's no power whatsoever against the flesh. But on this side, go to the next one. Go to the next one. There we go. On this side, there's people saying, yeah, but we got all kinds of freedom. But he says in there, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free, but be careful, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to what? Gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In fact, in Jude 4, it says this. 
It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, be careful because those of you on this side, what? You can get trapped as well. That's why, like in 2 Timothy, you see something different. Go with me to 2 Timothy 3 as we close up. 2 Timothy 3. Why is this so important to understand? Look at verse 16. The reason that we need to not go beyond what's written is because all Scripture is God-breathed out by, or by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's what he's worried about. See, there are some of you in here that really like for me to talk about freedom. And when I sit up here and talk about it, you're like, oh, that's good. That's right, Todd. You sit there and you hear it, and Paul says there will become groups of people that will cordon themselves off over here, and he says you will accumulate teachers that tell you what you want to hear. But it's not just those on that side. You will also accumulate for your teachers on themselves teachers on this side. In fact, I would say this right now is that on one level, there is one side of Christianity that I think we've become so much like the world that we're no longer impacting the world. But I think we've become so segregated from the world that we're no longer impacting the world. And we're starting to accumulate for ourselves teachers that tell us what we want to hear about that. Remember how in 1 Timothy 4 he called it the teachings of demons? Did you know that the teaching of legalism, rules and regulations, is the teaching of demons? It's serious. Now, why again? Let me come back to this. There was a funeral here yesterday. A girl died. I kind of saw people coming in, going out. And I started asking myself this question. Has the church actually made any impact on their life? Have there been people around that have become all things to all people in an effort to save those people? And every time we do a funeral in here, I'm impacted by the reality, what are we doing? When is the last time we looked out at our community and we cried? Now, some of you live in Moore Park, some of you live in the Valley. I know some of you even live out as far as where Oak Park, wherever else there is out there, Newberry Park. When is, do we actually care about the fact that there are many outside of us that don't know God while we sit here and squabble about music and drinking beer? You see why this is so serious? See, I'm watching inside a cornerstone. I'm hearing some people go, oh my gosh, we need to get further over here. Todd, do you realize what's happening out in the world? No, I checked out. What's going on? (laughs) Todd, they're sinners. Shut up. (laughs) Now, in that, though, I also see a bunch of you that you're playing games. You've come over here and you've detached yourself from the Word of God in the name of freedom. And I'll tell you, It starts to break my heart when I see people that claim to know Christ that live over here for a while. See, this is what Paul is so concerned about in this passage. He looks out at that lost and dying world and says, how you guys interact together will impact how it is you reach the world that you're in. 
And so therefore, what it means to be in the world or not of the world, the church has to figure that out. We've got to figure that out. People always say, man, our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. You know what? It's going to hell in a handbasket because of this reason right here. The church has become too much like the world in some ways, but we've become so segregated from the world that we're not touching the world anymore. Why is the church dying? Why is our culture falling to pieces? Well, a lot of us look around and go, I'll tell you what, it's Obama's fault. <laughs> Them Democrats. We get the Democrats out of office. Party! <laughs> really? I seem to remember the early 2000s. The Republicans did great. Not. Why? Government doesn't change the world. We do. This is what Paul is saying. We don't have time to fight. We need to know truth. We need to wrestle through truth. The strong need to go to the weak, but the weak can't stay permanently weak. They've got to understand. They've got to get strong because we have a community to reach. Do you with me? That makes sense. That's what this is about. That's why this is so important. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how it is that we become all things to all people. So I'd love to have you back. Could you just pray with me now, though? Man, God, we need you to do a work in our church, the church you've called us to be a part of. Father, I look around at our community and we see the decay. We see the way in which our community is bought into all kinds of different lies outside of who you are. And Father, I confess to you as one of the shepherds and pastors, forgive us for that. Forgive us for not impacting our community. Father, forgive us for the stupid things we argue about inside of our church. Forgive us for our arguments about things that have to do with nothing, with reaching people with the gospel, but everything about my preferences. Forgive us for the times we look at the things like music or how we even school our kids or how we do this or that, Father, and we get so arrogant in our view and all the while we miss the fact that we're doing all these things to honor you to be able to save some. Father, would you make Cornerstone a church that is known by love? Father, would you do a work in the strong of our church that they understand the need to be able to go back to the weak and love them in all the different circumstances? But that, Father, you would help the weak to understand we can't stay weak. That, Father, we need to be able to reach our community. Father, would you help us next week as we unpack the reality of what it means to become all things to all people? Father, would you do a work of your spirit to empower us to be people that engage in the lost world that we're around with the greatest message ever of Jesus Christ. God, would you convict us when we get caught up in dumb things? Would you convict us when we lose sight of our call to make your name great amongst not only our community but the nations? Father, would you teach us the principle of 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 11, 1, so that we truly become a group of people that glorify you by imitating your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.